You know, the, the entrepreneurial journey is not that pretty a thing. People think it's just a euphoric trip into a wonderful experience. It's hell on earth. And I tell people right out of the gate, look, you may not have the constitution for this. From Comcast, NBC, Universal, Lift Labs, it's Ideas Elevated, the podcast for entrepreneurs that inspires and elevates innovative products to their full potential. I'm your host, Danielle Kahn, and today we're chatting with businessman, author, and Shark Tank investor, Kevin O'Leary. In this episode, you'll hear what Shark Tank investors are looking for when they get pitched. Kevin will share lessons and success that he has learned from his own portfolio companies. And you'll even hear how Kevin used data to improve and elevate Shark Tank itself. The discussion is led by Sam Schwartz, the Chief Business Development Officer here at Comcast. We join them both now, live at Lift Labs. When I saw that, I presented the data to every CEO and said, look, everybody, and it's only been not even a year yet, our cash flows are up 18%. So let's talk about a little bit of background. People know you from TV, mostly. Right. I actually grew up in Champaign-Urbana, Illinois, when my dad died very, very young, and my mother remarried, and... Uh, my stepfather, he was uh, an engineer at the University of Illinois in Champaign-Urbana, so my earliest memories are on Greencroft Avenue in that idyllic heartland of America kind of vibe. And I got my first exposure to television there um, on the Popeye show. Huh. And I, ha- huh. I actually have, somebody sent me that tape decades later, and there I was on TV saying, hmm, interesting. But he, he, uh, he went to work for, for the ILO, part of the United Nations, and we moved every two years we started in Cambodia, Tunisia, Ethiopia, um, Cyprus, Japan. So as a kid, you got to live in all those places. Sounds incredibly educational it, for a kid. I didn't know it at the time, but it was very interesting because it's given me a different perspective about uh, different societies and how, and I'm now a global investor as a result. I mean, I'm, I'm willing to put money into uh, you know, a French hotel in Cambodia because I've lived there. I understand what the risks are, and I think it gives me a huge advantage. But I just think the appreciate, you can't appreciate a different culture unless you live in it. That, you can read every report you, you can get and go on the internet and you know, watch all the videos, but unless you live with those people, you don't know what it's like. That's my attitude. And then in college, you were, I, I think I read that you were an environmental studies major or something well, like that? Well, I, I wanted the path of least resistance. So I did, uh, I tried two days of engineering and said, whoa, this is hard <laughs> shit. And I went straight, I went straight to psychology and um, environmental studies, which was a, you know, a brand new faculty. Um, but when I graduated, there were, there were no jobs for environmental study architects kind of thing. That's what I was. And my dad said to me, you're going to starve to death you better go back to business school, which I did. And, you know, I wanted to become a photographer, and he said, you're not good enough. Um, he was pretty honest. <laughs> but I went back to business school, and um, life is serendipitous. That's what happens. Um, I have a list here. You're a TV personality, an investor, entrepreneur, book author, salesman, guitar player, yeah. photographer. Is there a threat among all those things? What, what? Well, I, I'm a big believer, and I've come to the conclusion that... In business, you need to have the yin and yang of, you know, business is a very disciplined science. It's binary. You either make money or you lose it. But the arts are chaos. And I think great business leaders, I believe, dip into the artistic side of their personalities to to solve things because it's more random and chaotic, and I think you get your best ideas. And so I stay in touch with that. I, I certainly 
you know, I remember I couldn't even afford an SLR camera when I wanted to be a photographer. Now I own every single SLR made by every manufacturer. It doesn't mean I'm a better photographer. I just own them, and I like to work with them. Guitars, tomorrow morning at uh, 10 o'clock in Beverly, I'm picking up a 1961 Telecaster. Wow. Those of you who know guitars yeah. know that's a very rare, rare, very rare pickups hand-wrapped by Annabelle Leo Fender's right-hand gal. This stuff really matters if you're into guitars. And that's the whole idea of entrepreneurship. It provides the freedom later in life to do the things you wanted to do that you couldn't afford. That's my attitude. So with, now I'm spending a lot of time in the arts. With all those interests, and everybody here has a lot of interests, never have enough time to do everything they want in all those places. What's your daily routine like? How do you prioritize what you do every day? My days are insane. You know, I was in Seattle yesterday uh, meeting with the Amazon guys. I mean, you know, the, the time is the most precious asset you have and the, the proper use of it and the logistics on moving around and getting stuff done. And I pursue the things that really interest me. I'm really interested in what those Amazon dudes are doing. And I have a lot of companies with them and the stuff we're experimenting with now is crazy interesting. So I wanted to go out there just to do a couple of meetings on some of these new initiatives. And I think you're going to see some stuff coming out of them in the next six months I'll be involved in. It'll blow your mind. Is that the home and voice control or something beyond you know, that? You know, the thing that's going to happen, talk about Comcast and the opportunity, all right? Think, and you're in business development. We're here. Think about this. You know, I go on QVC and sell, as I did this Sunday, I sold a million dollars worth of wine and $350,000 worth of sous vide Chateaubriand. And I did it by going on television and reaching 6.2 million people. But the leakage is terrible because people are watching you on television, but they can't order the product. They have to go to the phone or to their laptop to do it. The opportunity for television is the visceral experience. Of, you know, let's take a soft uh, a product from, from um, Shark Tank, the new Benji Lock, which is hitting the market. You should be able to watch that pitch on your device and just touch it to order. I've got a demo for you. When, Make when, it happen. when we're done, I've got Make, a demo for you. you. If you want to really monetize television and direct link with yeah. people, you do that and watch what happens. The sell-through rate will go from 2% to 13 Now, you can do that. You, you have yeah, that so, technology. So I'm a big believer in the, in the app store on the mobile phone. And yes. we, we could either try and recreate that experience on the TV or we could leverage what people already have. Exactly. And, and so what we've been doing is trying to take the moment, the context of television, and bring it to the mobile phone at that instant. So imagine if you're watching QVC and you want to purchase it, we can have your phone light up at that moment with the context of whatever you saw on TV. So if, if it was a commercial for an airline... But if I have a Prime account, could I just touch the lower third and get the product shipped to me? Why do I have to do any more than that? Why do I have to even think past that? Yeah. That's what I want. Yeah, you want to just make it seamless right, all on the TV set. Because if I already have set up the payment structure, because pretty well everybody in America has a Prime account, let's face it, why do I have to work to spend my money? It should be so easy, and that's how it's going to be. Yeah. And so I watch CNBC on this. I don't watch TV. I watch TV on this every morning. I'm in a hotel shaving, watching Kramer. That's what I do every day. I'm up at, you know, 4, 4.35 o'clock. I watch CNBC. It, it's that and Shark Tank and football. Those are the three things I watch. I like to see how they edited the pitches. But if I'm watching something, why can't I buy it? Make it happen for me. We'll work on that, and I'll bring you back. And you can, can you imagine the opportunity that is to monetize? I mean, it's crazy. Right. Every 30-second spot could be 
an opportunity to buy if something. I, yeah, if, if I, I connect with the product, I want to have it. I want yeah. it shipped to me. Why do I have I think, to work to spend I my money? I think we can already do that with HSN and QVC. But how do I pay? Do I have to have an account set up already? You see what I'm talking about here? Apparently, Amazon is working. I'm on all it, so. over this stuff, and I sell a lot of product direct to people, and right. I like right. doing it. Um, switching gears. So you're known as the mean shark on the show. I don't even understand that. I'm the only one that tells the truth, and I mean, like, are you that way out of work? Yeah. Like, I think in business, <laughs> it's binary. I said it earlier. You either make money or lose it. When you see a really bankrupt idea that has no merit and is going to zero, why not just tell them the truth? The real world's going to bite them anyways. I think about this question a lot, and oh, I know you do as well. There, there are lots of programs to turn everybody in the world into an entrepreneur or turn everybody in the world into a coder as if that's some sort of panacea. Yeah, what, what, what do you think about that? No. You know, the, the entrepreneurial journey is not that pretty a thing. People think it's just a euphoric trip into a wonderful experience. It's hell on earth. People don't understand how hard that is. It's not for everybody. Very few people can take the hit, and, and, and most of the time, it's not overnight success. In fact, 99% of the time, it's 10 years or longer of some very difficult times. And I tell people right out of the gate, look, you may not have the constitution for this. And I also have to very often swap out CEOs once they get to three or four million in sales because they're not able to assimilate data from the market. Their greatest strength was their myopic focus on their vision, but when the market starts to pivot and change, they can't. It's still good for them because they own stock, they have some equity, but they're not the right person. Are there questions that a person could ask themselves to see if they're a good entrepreneur? Is, is that self-assessment Well, if possible? you think there's balance in life, you're not an entrepreneur because there's no balance. You're not going to get to any soccer games. You're not going to be hanging out with the family on barbecues on Sunday. None of that's going to happen, ever. You're going to be burning 25 hours a day trying to figure out how to stop that guy in Mumbai or Shanghai from kicking your ass because that's what's happening these days. Pretty well every hot product that we launch here stateside gets knocked off in 48 hours. And we're litigating and we're defending it. It's a nasty, nasty war out there. And, and you've got to work your ass off. What, what do you think an optimal culture is for a company? In other words, is it a, a tough environment if you're an employee? Is it a loving environment? Is it a nurturing environment? What, 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 what are your thoughts on you culture? You have raised a really good question. And I, and I have an answer for you based on real data. Over a decade now, I have been trying to figure out the differences between the successful companies measured by only one metric, return of capital, IRR. And I've had 50 investments, you know, and they're rolling. There's always, my day is always a euphoric call about, oh, well, I'm getting bought for $300 million or I'm going out of business on the other end. That's happening every day. Well, you know this if you're in business development. So we did a study because over seven years on just my Shark Tank deals. 34 of them that are active right now. Some have failed, some have been successful. 90% of my returns came from the ones run by women. Why? Here's why. If we went back and looked at every single quarter, this goes to your culture issue, and said, what is the secret sauce? What are they doing that in all these different sectors from high tech to baking cupcakes? Like, why are these companies returning capital? Why are they so stable and they have cash flows that return capital? So we looked at every quarter and said, let's look at every one run by men. How many times did they hit their quarter? The number one metric, you put a sales you know, target out there, and then you see if you hit it. 
Men hit their targets 65% of the time, yet they had really lofty growth metrics, as much as 30% annualized, which looked pretty good to me. And then we looked at the ones run by women. They hit their targets 95% of the time, but very often had 8%, 7%, 6% growth metrics. So to me, they're just sandbagging it. Why would it make a difference? Here's why it makes a difference. Look at the culture of any sports team that consistently wins, hits their goals. There's no staff turnover. There's no, nobody wants to be traded. We have no staff turnover in the companies that are hitting their goals, practically zero, if you're constantly hitting your targets every quarter. When I saw that, I, I got all the companies to uh, South Beach this year in February, and I presented the data to every CEO and said, look, everybody, bring these goals down to targets we hit 90% of the time, at least, and our staff turnover will drop dramatically and cash flows will increase. And it's only been not even a year yet. Our cash flows are up 18% across the portfolio. Do businesses have a social obligation in terms of Washington, um, healthcare, other issues? The DNA of a business is to return capital to its shareholders, period. That's it. The rest is bullshit. If you try and contort a business to take care of and save every baby whale off the coast or go into a social program of your headquarters when you're a global entity, why do you as a CEO have the right to determine what I do with my dividends? It just outrages me when that happens, that you pick a charity before it comes to me in return of capital. I pick my own charities, thank you. I don't need to invest in you as a CEO to solve the world's problems. I want you to make me money. Now, when I teach this stuff at Harvard and MIT, it's a shitstorm. The class goes, bifurcates into two. And you could argue that solving social problems, being a wonderful company, is a marketing strategy. It's a recruiting strategy, too. Could be, and yet, I look at your income statement, and if the industry is doing, let's say, 20% pre-tax, and you're doing 14, I cry bullshit. It's not working. This is an issue, right? I mean, it is. I'm it, not, I'm not it, trying it to be is. cold, no, but I invest in companies, including yours, to make me money. So don't save baby whales. We're, we're, we're doing okay. <laughs> okay. Um, okay. <laughs> so lots happening in Silicon Valley, uh, and it seems like there's sort of a reckoning going on in terms of, you know, is all the innovation good for society? Um, you know, is it really innovation or is it something else at work which is more about exploitation of workers or is it about um, unfair competition, avoidance of regulation? Do you have a perspective on that? It's, yeah, it's sort my, of a, my what, what people are calling a tech lash. Yeah, I get it. And it's reflected in market capitalizations in the last six months now, basically. The rollover started about five, six months ago. And so I, you know, I'm very active in, in watching these sectors and capital flows to them because I'm big in the ETF market where we create these indices. The best answer to these problems is let the markets be the markets. The worst thing we can do, particularly with the advances we have in our own technology where we lead the world on a lot of these platforms, is to say to ourselves, let's let the government decide what to do with this. Hi, I'm from the government and I'm here to help you. That's what you hear when you go to hell. because. They don't know what they're doing either. The markets are far more efficient at divining out the bad actors, punishing them for in whatever way it's going to be. Advertisers go away or whatever. But I hate the fact that people are crying for regulation. And I argue this all the time on CNBC because we always have a, a Roger McNamee coming on saying, well, we've got to regulate Facebook. Bullshit. The market will do that for you. If advertisers really thought that users weren't going to use that platform, they wouldn't advertise on it. 
by the way, I looked at, 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 at spends for small cap companies uh, for the next 18 months. Our spend on Facebook is up for one reason, geolocking, the ability to geolock and test prices in different states. Nobody else can do that. There's nothing going to happen to those guys. That platform is going to continue to grow. It's not going away. It gets hacked. So what? I personally don't think Russians decide elections because people aren't that stupid anyways. So, and frankly, when I talk to my kids who are 21 and 24, are you worried about your, you know, your, your data? They say, no, no, I'm trying to get my data out there. Like, they're not, they don't care that much. And their friends don't care. There's a whole generation that couldn't give a damn. Interesting. So think about a question or two you might want to ask Kevin. Um, let's talk about Shark Tank. Everybody will want, will want to hear about that. So I heard you say that for the first three years, the formula was sort of off. And after that, you changed where you didn't require uh, companies yeah, yeah. to Yeah, the reason up. it didn't work was when Mark Burnett envisioned it, it's a Sony format. It's on in 32 countries. They went to Mark and said, Mark, let's bring Dragon's Den. It's called Dragon's Den all around the world. Let's bring it to America. And Mark said, I don't like Dragon's Den. It's too kung fu. I'm going to change the name. I'm going to call it Shark Tank. I got a call from him saying, look, we're looking for a real asshole. How about you? I said, I'm your guy. Let's do that. And so we started working on it for the first three years. Sony, Mark Burnett Productions, and Disney took 2.5% equity. It's public. I'm not speaking out of school. 2.5% equity or 3% free cash flow, free tax. So if you already had a, a business that had shareholders through a VC firm, there's no way you can do that deal. You can't just give rights up without a shareholder vote. So we ended up getting a bunch of crap, like nothing of value, just a whole bunch of what we called turbo basters. People would put a battery in a turkey juicer and say, <laughs> you know, that was the stuff we had for three years. So it didn't work. And then Cuban and I went to see uh, Sony and then... I think it was Iger's decision eventually at ABC saying, we're not in the venture business, we're in the television business. Scrap that, and in year four, our numbers went geometric. They went from, you know... Because the quality went up. Oh, my goodness. We started getting real companies, real deals, real products. Ten million people watched it in the fourth year. People don't really think of Shark Tank as a marketing machine. Maybe you could talk about that for a second. Well, machine. it's television first. You have to make great television. Nobody watches it. But yeah. the truth about Shark Tank, the secret sauce, is that... The number one reason startups fail in America after 36 months is customer acquisition costs are never lower than lifetime value. So basically what that says is people keep spending so much money in advertising, they go out of business, acquire customers, using all the social platforms. If you get on Shark Tank, your customer acquisition costs are zero. And if you get a deal and you constantly get updates every eight months, seven months, six months, Zero customer acquisition costs. So you take a mediocre company, which would normally spend 18% of the income statement on acquiring customers, and take that cost out of the model. That means a mediocre company is now the best of class, even though they're crappy operators. It's better to find a really good team that's got great lo logistics skills, give them the Shark Tank platform, and all of a sudden you're making 40% pre-tax. It's crazy. Are there companies that come on there basically for the PR, not for the investment? Yeah, we call them gold diggers, and we turn the tape off. We don't even finish taping them. We can smell it right out of the gate. For example, they'll tell the producers they want a valuation of, you know, a five million pre, and then they come out on the carpet and they're asking for a forty million pre. So they bullshitted their way out of the carpet, and then you never see that stuff. But we just take them behind the barn and shoot them right there. <laughs> um, what criteria do you use when you, when you're picking uh, real time companies that you do want to make investment in on Shark Tank? I try and stay away from extremely mature markets. If you bring a hot sauce or a ketchup or a relish, 
onto Shark Tank and you tell me it was your old Louisiana grandmother's recipe, I couldn't give a shit. Because that market is growing at 3%. The, the share is already established. There's no shelf space available. It doesn't matter what you do, you'll never get share. I like companies that are doing something brand new or something disruptive. For example, well, it hasn't aired yet, so I can't say, but there's some great deals where people took an existing low-growth market, established, multi-billion dollar market, established, and brought a complete new innovation to how the product was manufactured in a way that was a huge advancement. And it's eating share like crazy. So I back something like that because I don't have to prove the product category. I don't have to prove the market. I already know there's millions of people that want a better mousetrap, and it's got a patent, a real patent, not pending, a real one. What's the best investment you think you've made on Shark Tank? Well, the best investment is just an IRR was, uh, was plated. Plated was a deal. When Amazon bought Whole Foods, Albertson's response was to buy plated for $300 million the next week. Blue Apron. Yeah, yeah. It's Blue Apron on steroids. Better than Blue Apron. Okay. Yeah. All right. Any questions from the audience for Kevin? Luke? On Monday, you mentioned you were with Amazon in Seattle, and you've been to all of these other cities yeah. uh, since. Uh, where would you advise Amazon to put its second headquarters? <laughs> you know, I was talking to the executives there about it, and everybody has an opinion about this, but in my, my model for my businesses, all the compliance costs, all the financial services, all the infrastructure, I put in Canada, in cities like Montreal and Toronto, because I'm paying in dollarettes. I'm getting the same service, and I'm paying 27% less. So... I can see why they may consider Toronto because they've got all these universities there. The city will bend over backwards. The Canadian dollar will always trade at a perpetual discount, I think, because they've got a lot of social issues to deal with and everything else. But that may be an interesting alternative. I've done it now. I've got offices in Montreal, Canada for compliance on my financial services platforms. And the SEC has allowed that. So quietly, companies like Fidelity and Putnam have moved all their bond traders up to Montreal. Great city, 27% cheaper. I think that's an opportunity to go stick it up in Canada somewhere. Although that's probably not the message you want to send to Trump because he's very, you know, by America. So maybe they won't do that. I don't know. Tavash? Have you followed the emerging market around legalizing marijuana and THC and CBD yes. and your oh, point of view on what kind of businesses will be successful in that space? We could have a whole hour on that. I had the opportunity to invest in every single one of those Canadian cannabis companies when they were 10 cents a share, sometimes two cents a share. And I kept calling my guys in Washington who represent me with the SEC and all the platforms that I have to be compliant on. The issuance of ETFs, for example, or private equity issuances, or debt issuances. Cannabis and CBD is a Schedule One narcotic. It is, you have to abide by the RICO statutes. If you aid and abet the transfer of Schedule One narcotic across state lines, 26 years in prison, no flexibility on the sentence. I don't think I'll look that good after 26 years in prison. So I have avoided touching that stuff. I think it is going to be a remarkable um, industry. I don't believe in the recreational side because I met with the chair of Mothers Against Drunk Driving. She will never endorse this. She has power in every state with senators. She will make their lives hell. And she's transparent about that. So forget that side, no matter how you feel about it. 
the medicinal side, if the bifurcated and get the FDA, you know, took off the Schedule One for CBD, I would invest in that like crazy because that stuff works. That's the opportunity. Just a quick follow-up, and if that's the opportunity, what kinds of businesses do you like in that space? Well, cannabis is no different than tobacco or, or alcohol, like a vodka. It's a total commodity. All those Canadian companies, their cost of manufacturing is too high. As soon as this thing gets made legal, you want to grow it in Venezuela and Colombia, where you have five growing seasons. Your cost is the lowest there. That's what's going to happen. All those companies are going to have a really hard time when this becomes a commodity. That's why you see their stocks rolling over already after the legalization. I will invest in the medicinal side, where brand matters, and the oils and the ingestibles will matter based on brand. That'll be a huge business. I'm going to do something real quick. We have like one minute left. I'm going to give you a couple of um, words, word association. Just give me your, the first thing that comes to mind, and then we'll let you go. Um, Apple. Brand. Favorite tech product. Oh, that's interesting. Wristwatch. Okay. Old school. Mechanical. Good answer. Uh, relaxation. Playing guitar. Success. Freedom. Thank you. Right. Thanks very much. Freedom. This has been Ideas Elevated from Comcast NBC Universal Lift Labs. Be sure to subscribe to the show and leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts. For more info and to follow us on social, head to ComcastNBCULift.com or check out the show notes. This episode was produced and edited by our partners in Philadelphia, Kevin Schmidlin of Q9 Creative and Rec Philly, with original music by Lee Rosevier and theme music by The Last Generation on Film. From Lift Labs, I'm Danielle Kahn. Until next time.